Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, David Crow. Joining me in the studio today are Nick McGaw, retail banking correspondent, and Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent. Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, will be joining us down the line from New York. And our guest this week is Anne Finucane, vice chair of Bank of America. This week, we'll be discussing how banks are preparing for Brexit, with less than 40 days to go until the March 29th D-Day. Citigroup's move to buy its Canary Wharf skyscraper office. And sticking with Citigroup, Laura has been talking to its chief executive about how artificial intelligence could spell the end of thousands of call centre jobs and the bank's enduring commitment to China. Nick, you had a scoop about growing concerns among UK banks over a no-deal Brexit and what the Treasury is doing to prepare. What's got them so hot under the collar? Well, for a lot of banks at the moment, the big worry is that while they themselves might have done most of their practical preparations for Brexit, a lot of their small and medium-sized business customers won't have put in quite as much planning. And if they run into supply chain issues, if we've got queues at the border or tariffs suddenly driving up the prices of some of their goods, that could lead to them being unable to repay their loans, defaults start rising, and then suddenly things start getting a lot worse quickly with businesses collapsing and so on. And in previous crises, be it the financial crisis 10 years ago, most obviously, but also around the time of the Brexit vote itself, executives at the banks are expected to be called in to the Treasury and talk to the Chancellor and his team to try and coordinate a response. And this time the banks have suggested some policies to try and help deal with some of these things, like maybe the government extending guarantees on certain loans. And there's just been a surprise at the lack of engagement from the Treasury on those points. Sort of one particularly flummoxed senior banker said he felt like they'd gone completely AWOL. So what have the banks done in the absence of the Treasury to help their customers prepare for a no-deal Brexit? So we have had some sector-wide planning kind of coordination with UK Finance, the trade group, intending to give some more broad information and places for SMEs to turn to and maybe get help in advance of anything going on. But most of the concrete lending and other financial action has been done on a firm level basis. So Royal Bank of Scotland, for example, said before Christmas they'd put aside £2 billion specifically to help provide financial solutions for firms. Maybe that would be providing a service so that they could pay for most of their supplies a year in advance rather than doing it as they were going. The flip side of that is that they also just took £100 million impairment in expectation that loan defaults were going to go up and said last week that it's going to get a lot harder for them to reach some of their long-term targets. And we had on Tuesday morning HSBC taking similar hits in their results. So, uh, Mr. Hammond, if you can hear us in the Treasury, the banks are sending lots of warning signals. Thanks a lot, Nick. Now, last week, Patrick Jenkins, our financial editor, interviewed Anne Finucane, Bank of America's vice chair, 
on stage at the FT's European Financial Forum in Dublin. He kicked off by asking what preparations the lender had taken in advance of Brexit. And she told him that having moved its European HQ to Ireland, there was no going back. We have moved our banking operations to be headquartered out of Dublin. That would mean that Dublin and the eight branches we have would include the UK, would now become a branch of the Dublin operation, and then we'll do all of our banking headquartered out of Dublin with these branches. So a year ago, the reverse would have been true. Dublin would have been a branch of the UK. Likewise, on the brokerage side, we are standing up an operation in Paris. We can still do some FIC derivatives and corporate bonds out of Dublin, but we'll do equities and part of the FIC book out of Paris. So we will essentially then have, for European trading, it will come out of Paris. For European banking, it will come out of Dublin. And the UK will maintain its UK business. And what does that mean in terms of the jobs and the volume of assets that have moved around between all of these locations? Well, we have something in excess of 50 billion in assets for Europe out of Dublin. Hard to say quite what the trading will be, but we'll have 500 people in Paris. We'll have about 800 here, and they will diminish somewhat what we've got in the UK. It isn't all plus plus. It means a reduction in the UK offices. How much does this all cost, this big rejig? (laughs) The Brexit um, rejig. Hundreds of millions, maybe 400 million. And, I mean, multiply that by the number of financial institutions that are doing the same, and it adds up. This is a very expensive process, yes, clearly. But you are ready for We're ready. even no-deal Brexit. Well, even a no-deal Brexit, just for the record, Dublin is our headquarters for our European bank now, full stop. If there were no Brexit, that has happened. There isn't a return. The bridge has been pulled up on that. From a trading perspective, likewise, Paris would be the European trading arm. I'm not sure, because that's a little more dependent on where our clients want to trade. So depending on whether it's a transition or hard Brexit, that might have some mobility to it. But at any rate, we're fully ready. Right. Very good. Now, I talked about your frequent visits to Dublin. You travel the world on a regular basis, and one of the places you've just come back from, I think, is Davos, where you were part of the many hundreds, if not thousands, of global elite debating the future of the world. What did you take away from Davos this year? It was a pretty downbeat mood there, by all accounts. Did you take away some positive messages? I did. I don't think I've ever thought of myself as a global elite. I love it. So (laughs) just one moment. Well, it was a little different Davos. There were fewer governments there, fewer elected officials walking through and giving speeches, which made it a little different. But I would say there were some themes that were, at least for me, very interesting. Obviously, the role and the growing role of AI. For my category, the responsibility of financial institutions in terms of the communities, both local and global, in which we work and live. I think this is just a double-down reminder of uh, never again on a financial crisis and the kind of chaos that can create. It's an interesting bit of work around disabilities, which I've never seen before, just the role of global economies and what we can do in terms of hiring and providing employment for people with disabilities. So it was a little different. You talked about AI, the artificial intelligence theme is something that a lot of financial services companies are talking about. How real is it in terms of your business already? 
Well, it's very real. It's actually a fundamental of the business. I mean, we call it AI today, but the reality is, you know, we were computerizing checks and account management in the 50s, and I think on a relative basis that was some form of AI then. But the ability to do predictive analysis, predictive modeling, to then marry that with electronic and intelligent computerization for consumers as well as for companies. So it certainly helps our equity research group and our investment bankers, but it also helps our consumers. We have a product called Erica, which is a little bit like a form of Alexa or a Google Home so that you can do predictive modeling for people, and this matters. Now, you have to marry that to making sure that you're also thinking in terms of security and to be in compliance with government. And this came up a fair amount at Davos. The connection amongst business, academia, and government is probably focused on this AI space. Okay. Now, I don't know if you saw the governor of the Bank of England gave a, a big speech in London, sounding the alarm really about what Brexit meant in the broader scheme of things globally. He was essentially talking about Brexit being a canary in the coal mine for the kind of forces that are acting against globalization. Like a political bellwether? A bit like that, yeah. exactly. And the sense that we should be very careful what might come next. How does that play into what you're seeing, for example, in the US, where I know you're very interested in the political scene and obviously your job involves interaction with policymakers on a regular basis. Well, I mean, this movement toward nationalism globally is interesting, sometimes alarming. In the US, I think uh, America first does not mean America only. So I wouldn't displace political rhetoric for a real way of being. And in terms of business, we look to take advantage of the global marketplace and we're very focused on that in American business, period. Now, I do think, though, there is this political movement afoot and it certainly concerns us because Brexit has obviously been a disruptor for us and for every financial institution. We've accommodated it, but nobody wants to spend $400 million that you didn't otherwise think you had to spend. We're prepared for it, but we would look for hopefully some harmonization on the other side. So is it there? Yes. I would say in America that is more political than it is a reality of a long-term play. Okay. Let's hope you're right on that. So, Stephen, you had a scoop on what could be one of the biggest London property deals in recent years, City's purchase of its London skyscraper. How much is it shelling out and why? Well, the tower was originally valued at around £1.2 billion, but we think the eventual price for City will end up being a little bit lower than that. But it's one of a series of very big property transactions in London that have happened after Brexit, a lot of them actually involving banks. The interesting thing about City, though, is that it's pursuing a slightly different strategy to UBS and Goldman Sachs, both of whom have either built or are building new headquarters, who have sold them to other investors and are leasing them back for 25 years or more. City has actually bought the building from its current Middle Eastern-backed private equity owners as part of this long-term strategy to reduce its real estate expenses by owning rather than leasing or renting these buildings. They did the same in New York a couple of years ago, buying their Tribeca headquarters for $2 billion. And they're really doubling down on London here as being its EMEA centre. During the reporting of the article, I spoke to a few sources and they said only about 60 people are being relocated out of London into other offices like Frankfurt and especially Paris for Citigroup. 
And they'll still have 9,000 staff in the UK and 6,000 in London. So whilst Brexit is undeniably having a huge impact on London's financial services industry, this is at least one sort of bright spot peeking through the clouds. And so the inference is that City is taking a more sort of benign view of Brexit and the possible fallout than the likes of Bank of America, who is running for the hills in comparison, and Goldman and JP Morgan, who are sort of hedging their bets. Exactly. That's a good sort of overview of where they are. Like Bank of America, they've created new subsidiaries, they're moving people, they've spent $400 million on it, they've said this is irreversible. JP Morgan are kind of hedging their bets, waiting to see what happens. They'll have just enough people in other offices inside the European Union to cope on day one, but they'll have to bolster it up if there's no deal or at least a bad deal for financial services. But City does appear to be taking a much more benign long-term view. I mean, Goldman Sachs has leased this building for 25 years and they're building in London for 25 years, and it would cost a lot to break that. But certainly it's a lot less hassle to break a lease than it is to try and sell a building, especially if in 25 years' time London is definitively no longer the financial centre of Europe. Well, here's hoping that City's logo still sits atop that building in 25 years. Stephen, thanks a lot. Now, sticking with Citigroup, Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, has been interviewing Mike Corbett, the chief executive. She joins us down the line from New York. Now, Laura, what did Mr Corbett have to say for himself? One of the big things he was talking about was technology. He was quite enthusiastic about how technology could improve the call centre area in particular. So he said City still employs tens of thousands of people in call centres. Those are answering queries and everything from people who want to get an ATM card replaced to people who want balance statements and other fairly mundane things. He said that he thought that AI and other forms of digitization and data science could actually lead to a lot of that work being done without real life people. He thought that would both radically improve the experience of the customer and would also lead to lower costs. Now, the one thing to stress is that he didn't give any time frame as to when he saw the robots taking over from the people. He was also pretty clear that this is not going to be everybody. So he was clear that there are going to be some transactions where customers want to talk to actual people. And he said City is very much committed to having those people in place because he doesn't want customers to be frustrated in their attempts to do that. So I think the two caveats that I would put on it, there are going to be actual people still there, and this is going to take time. And what did you have to say about the bank's commitment to China, where it has a big presence, given the political and economic uncertainty in the region? City is still one of the biggest and most active banks in China, and Mr Corbett was pretty emphatic that he doesn't see that changing anytime soon, even given the current trade tensions and other issues between China and the US. His point was that there is an underlying demand there. China is going to need soy. China is going to ultimately need the other things that it imports from the US now. And even if it becomes harder to import those things directly from the US, the need for them isn't going to go away, and therefore other trade corridors are going to open up. Because City is in over 100 markets, he believes City is ultimately going to be there to provide the services it currently provides through China. Things like trade finance, treasury services, he thinks that City is going to provide those regardless of the exact trade card or which the trade flows through. And we also learned about Mr Corbett's pay last week, didn't we? How's he doing? Much better than the rest of us, I imagine. On the pay front, I think it's fair to say it was a pretty good year for Mr. Corbett. He got paid $24 million last year, which is a astronomical sum by most people's standards. That was up 5% year on year. That's the same percentage as JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, who got $31 million and remains the US's best paid bank CEO. So Corbett's $24 million would put him at the bottom end of the Wall Street CEOs we've had so far. The only person who has lower 
I guess we say lower in the context of these extraordinarily high sums. Was Goldman Sachs chief executive David Solomon? He got 23 million last year, but let's remember he only took over as chief executive in October. So that was a pro rata. So we would expect his overall package to rise next year. And the other thing to bear in mind about all of these packages is that the actual salary is a lot lower. So in Mr. Corbett's case, the salary was $1.5 million, which was the same as he got in 2017. The rest of it is made up of bonus and deferred stock, which usually takes several years to vet. So in Mr. Corbett's case, he got a 6.5 million cash bonus and 7.5 million in deferred stock that will vest over four years, plus 7.5 million in share units that will vest over three years, depending on the performance of the bank. So as of all these cases, it's not money that goes into their hand today or even this year. It's money that takes several years to pay out. And the ultimate value of what they get depends on both the bank's performance and hitting these various targets they have and also on the share price of the bank at the time when those shares actually vest and when they can actually sell them. So that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Nick, Stephen, Laura and our guest, Anfinuken. And thank you too for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com forward slash offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.